Hey everybody, uh, it's Brad from the Salvage Title Podcast, and uh, we are overdue for another episode of the Salvage Title Car Buyer's Guide. Uh, so on this particular one, we're going to be talking about midsize crossovers, uh, kind of slash SUVs. And I think a lot of that kind of really depends on your definition of what is midsize, uh, what is a crossover and SUV. Uh, it, it's the big things with four-wheel drive that are out there en masse these days. Um, it's a hot segment right now uh, in a price range that is pretty hotly contested. Uh, I, 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 it's hard for me to kind of go after some of these segments because, uh, as I talk about on the main salvage title show an awful lot, uh, I am a pretty SUV and crossover averse guy. Uh, I don't really care for riding up that high. I don't care for the compromises that you make when it comes to fuel economy and performance and overall ride and handling and all that stuff. And in the end, the reality of it is, and I think this has kind of been something that's kind of been coming to a head for me uh, these past few weeks following up the Detroit Auto Show, the Chicago Auto Show, and many others, is that uh, I don't really have a choice anymore. Uh, the average car that is sold in the United States, at least in terms of uh, overall popularity, is now the Toyota RAV4, where it had once been the Toyota Camry. Uh, the Nissan Rogue is a very hot-selling vehicle. I mean, uh, crossovers are here to stay, and they have driven up average transaction prices quite a bit in the past few years uh, for these vehicles. Vehicles, uh, where the mean transaction price, you know, 10 years or so ago would have been in the high 20s to low $30,000 range. Uh, at the end of 2018, the average transaction price uh, was near enough $38,000. Uh, so in this particular episode, uh, we're honing in on midsize crossovers slash SUVs. Uh, I believe all the ones I focused in on here are specifically crossovers, so they're body-on, or excuse me, not body-on-frame vehicles, but unibody vehicles. Uh, we are looking for two-row crossovers, not with a third row. Now, we do have one exception to that, which I think does have an optional third row, but most people that I know that own them never use them, so we're kind of skipping past that in this discussion. Uh, and the price cap that I have set for these is uh, $40,000. Now, I realize that that is above the average uh, national transaction price, but with uh, dealer incentives, with manufacturer rebates, so much more going on right now because these are the hot segment now. Uh, it's pretty, pretty easy to get many of these vehicles for way, way, way under the MSRP uh, that a lot of these brands are putting on the uh, hood of these vehicles. So, with all that in mind, uh, this is also the part where I remind you uh, the way that I kind of grade this scale. Um, now, I am not a professional automotive journalist. I am a guy who likes cars an awful lot, goes out and touches these things as often as possible, uh, takes into a lot of consideration what many publications, YouTube people, uh, blogs, so much more say about the cars and kind of feed that into a criteria that I think is worth considering at the very least. Uh, you know, me being in my 30s, me being a middle-class guy, uh, I can't exactly attest to a lot of the luxury features that are in many of these things, but there are some nice stuff going on to it. Uh, so the things that I really look for on these vehicles is, one, the engineering of the vehicle. Are they doing smart things? Are they doing interesting things? Uh, are they pushing boundaries forward uh, for this particular segment of vehicles? 
Two, uh, what kind of technology does it have? Uh, is it doing anything interesting when it comes to infotainment or safety technology or uh, autonomy or anything like that? And then three is going to be that kind of uh, je ne sais quoi, if it were, uh, kind of the overall feeling that you get from the car. So it's a kind of a combination of sportiness, uh, ride and handling, looks, uh, kind of an attitude that a car has. And I think I've described it better in previous episodes of the show, but it's been a while since I've done one. So these are kind of the three things that I kind of consider. Now, the other big thing, of course, is the way that I rank these kinds of things. Um, I'm going to give you three options that I think are the best in the segment. Uh, the three main ones that I would say to focus on most and then a fourth option for flavor. Uh, that fourth option might not always be the best one, but I think it is definitely one worth considering. Um, now, in this particular episode, I'm going to add a fifth model here because I just want to have an opportunity to talk about this particular one again uh, at length because I haven't talked about it enough, apparently, on the regular show. Uh, so buckle up, guys. Uh, we're going to talk about this uh, very controversial crossover for a good little bit here. So, with all that in mind, guys, after the bump, we'll talk about the third place crossover, the third choice, I would say, to go for uh, with the midsize crossover segment as we head into 2019. Now, coming in at number three is a model that I think might be a little bit controversial because of whether or not you consider it a crossover or a station wagon. Uh, Subaru would very much like to say that it is a crossover SUV. They argue that it is on their website. In actual everyday use, things like that, to me, it's a high-riding station wagon. Uh, but you know, hey, it is what it is. Uh, so what we're talking about is the 2019 Subaru Outback 3.6R Touring uh, SUV. Uh, this, of course, comes with standard all-wheel drive, the Subaru Symmetrical all-wheel drive. It's got a 3.6-liter flat 6 uh, mated to a CVT automatic. Uh, the nice thing about the 3.6R Touring is that basically every option box is ticked uh, in that lineup. Uh, I think the only thing that this one might be missing compared to the next model up above it is the panoramic sunroof, um, but whether or not that's necessary really kind of depends on you. Uh, the big thing with the Subaru, more than anything, is going to be the all-weather performance and the overall safety of the vehicle that I think is really a key factor in making it a smart choice if you're shopping for a midsize SUV. Uh, if you haven't seen one of these up close in a while, they are quite large. I very often forget how large of a car this is, uh, despite it not riding up as high as many other crossovers in its segment. Um, it gives you a relatively commanding view of the road, but it isn't going to give you that kind of tippy feeling that I personally don't care for when it comes to crossovers and SUVs. It being based on a car platform, it's going to ride mostly like a car. It's going to handle like a car. Um, it's going to get you out of a lot of tighter, tougher situations that a car would be able to be good at in a way that a crossover can't. 
and I really lean into that idea with this particular model. Now, it also being the near enough top trim in the Subaru lineup, you know, you've got leather seats, they're heated, uh, you got the big touchscreen infotainment system in there, um, you've got the standard eyesight uh, system up top. Like, there's basically no options that you get to select on this particular model. Uh, so, at right at $40,000, uh, you're basically running the game right there. Uh, uh, the base MSRP on this Subaru uh, is $39,970. Uh, I think most places you're going to go these days, you're probably going to be paying around 38 or less, uh, depending on what kind of negotiating skills you've got. Um, compared to many other vehicles in this lineup, I think you're really going to come off with something that is very capable day to day in most scenarios um, and really, you know, is able to pack in a lot of stuff comfortably. It, it just works. And I think that's really the big upside to the Subaru Outback is that it just works there's not any extra bullshit making it you know oh it's i'm an off-road capable sv oh i'm more of a car it, it just is a nice balance between the two that makes it a smart choice now that being said is the 3.6 r the best one in the segment i would argue no i i, I set the price at forty thousand dollars i wanted to see what we could get for forty thousand dollars i think a much lower trim outback is going to be more than enough for more people um, but when you consider some of the other vehicles in this category are going to get you a lot less uh, for much more money than the Subaru, you know, why not spend the extra cash? Am I right? Uh, the other thing that I do have a little bit of a cautionary point on with the Subaru Outback is that the 2020 Outback is going to be here in the not-too-distant future. Uh, the 2020 Outback will ride on an all-new chassis that will be stiffer, which means the car will ride and handle much better. Uh, it will be using a new 2.4-liter turbocharged flat-four engine that's shared with the new Ascent SUV um, that's going to make it a probably much more fuel-efficient and much more overall capable vehicle in many places. So if you live at a place like in Colorado, uh, where you're at elevation, that turbocharge engine is going to make a lot more power and give you a lot more performance up there in the mountains uh, versus everybody else who lives down on the ground where that V6 is going to be uh, relatively capable. Or excuse me, the flat six. Whoa. Um, I think the other big thing is waiting for that turbocharged flat four um, is just going to give it a much better performance overall. Uh, that flat six has been around for a long time, but it's tired. It needs to go away. Um, so, you know, depending on where you're at, if there's deals on the table for this particular one, if you're like, you know, yo, man, I want to spend thirty-five dollars to $40,000 on a new crossover right now. I think the Outback is a really good choice. Um, but, you know, wait for those those deals to kind of come out when they're trying to get rid of the 2019s to get the 2020s in the door. Uh, I, I think saving that little bit of cash, getting that, you know, extra equipment, things like that, I think it's going to be worth it. So, you know, if you're out there, third place, Subaru Outback 3.6R. So kind of like the number three option in this lineup, the number two option kind of straddles segments as well. Um, if the Subaru is not quite a crossover and not quite a station wagon, uh, the Jeep Grand Cherokee is kind of not quite a crossover, but also more of an SUV. Um, what I like the most about the Jeep Grand Cherokee is that it is a supremely capable vehicle in pretty much every trim and pretty much every powertrain option, so on and so forth, uh, this Jeep is going to go pretty far compared to a lot of other vehicles out there. 
Now, if memory serves me correctly, the Jeep Grand Cherokee can be had with a third row seat. Uh, we're going to pretend that that doesn't exist in this argument, especially since we're focusing in on uh, five-seater, two-row uh, crossovers in this competition. Uh, but the model we're focusing in on here, at least with the Jeep Grand Cherokee, is the Laredo E 4x4. Um, now, I believe the Laredo E adds some uh, electronic gadgets to the seats, uh, some power functions uh, here and there to make it a little bit more of a livable space. Uh, when I threw on the configurator, uh, I added the off-road uh, capability package. I think it's just the off-road package is what they call it, which adds the uh, um, more complicated, uh, heavier-duty off-road 4x4 system. Um, it increases some of the butchness of the vehicle a little bit more. I added the technology package that adds some nicer safety features and I also uh, optioned it with the larger 8.4 inch touchscreen uh, to match up with some of the other vehicles in this segment. Now that being said, I believe the new 8.4 inch unit that's in this Jeep is not quite Android Auto and Apple CarPlay compatible, but don't 100% quote me on that because it really seems like it's vehicle to vehicle these days at FCA. The main thing is that uh, the uh, system that Fiat Chrysler uses, uh, Uconnect, is one of the better infotainment systems out there. So even with the Android Auto and Apple CarPlay integration, I think most people are going to be pretty happy with that system overall. Um, but really, you know, if you haven't been in a Jeep Grand Cherokee lately, it is really interesting to see, you know, where money is spent at Fiat Chrysler when it comes to interior appointments, interior design, uh, overall execution in terms of quality and refinement. Uh, if it is not the Ram 1500, which is arguably the best interior in any Fiat product right now, uh, I think the Jeep Grand Cherokee is probably second. Um, now, granted, there are some trims that are much nicer than the Laredo. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the Overland. I'm thinking of the... Uh, What's the other one? The Limited, so much more. Uh, it's th Those ones are really, really nice. But the Laredo is definitely what I'd consider good enough. And especially with that larger touchscreen, especially with some of the uh, more basic interior appointments, you're really going to get a lot more use out of this vehicle. And I think that's really the main thing with this Jeep compared to the Subaru and why I kind of had a little bit of a hard time deciding where to put those ones is that if the Subaru is a better crossover for everyday use, that is, you know, going to the post office, going to the grocery store, driving it to work, you know, not burning a ton of gas, the Jeep is a much better vehicle when it comes to use as in, you know, pulling a boat, picking up stuff at the hardware store, going out to the lake, doing some light off-roading, using it more of a truck than a crossover. I think that Jeep is really going to excel in that aspect of things. So if you're a little bit more of a sport-oriented person, if you find yourself out on the two tracks a little more often, I think the Jeep is going to suit you and your tastes a little bit more. And I think the other big thing, especially compared to the Subaru, is that um, as much as the Subaru is very capable in many weather situations, uh, when the going really, truly gets tough, uh, the Jeep Grand Cherokee is going to get you out of a lot more situations than the Subaru would ever even attempt to be in. And, you know, living here in Michigan where the snow gets pretty freaking bad, where you get some pretty big snow banks on the sides of the road sometimes... Having that little bit of extra 4x4 capability with that Jeep, uh, I think, is going to be good. Now, whether or not people are actually going to be able to use it and not drive a million miles an hour on the highway, not realizing that it's not four-wheel drive that makes you stop, but the brakes and the tires, uh, you know, I think your mileage really is going to vary there. But I think in the end, 
you know, if if you're going to be using your SUV for what a SUV or crossover is designed to be used for, to be a little more tough, to handle a little more rougher of a situation, I think the Jeep really has that cornered in, in spades. Uh, the, the, really, this would have been the first pick overall in this segment if it weren't for the number one choice vehicle. And I think really the number one choice vehicle is really just kind of a confluence of a lot of different tastes and things kind of coming together uh, to make that, at least to me, the better choice at the moment. Uh, I think the other thing to keep an eye out for on the Jeep more than anything is that as much as I shot for a $40,000 uh, MSRP, uh, Jeep puts incentives on the Grand Cherokees uh, pretty frequently. So your pricing is really going to vary where you are shopping, what kind of dealer you're at. If you're in a competitive space for crossovers and SUVs, uh, things can get pretty crazy. I think here in Michigan right now, there's like almost like $3,000 or more than that uh, off the price of a Grand Cherokee at the moment. Uh, so you might be able to get one for very, very cheap. Um, but, you know, other places it might be a little more difficult. So the other good news is that at that $40,000 price range, you know, if those incentives are there, you might be able to get a much better equipped Jeep uh, for much less money and not have to option up a Laredo to get to that competitive performance scale. So uh, at number two, I think that's a pretty safe choice. And I think you'll kind of understand why the Jeep is number two uh, when I talk about the number one vehicle. So coming in at number one is a crossover with which I feel fixes a lot of the problems that I have with the vehicle that it's based on. Um, it's really a crossover that I feel like is right-sized for a lot of people uh, in the crossover segment these days and really just kind of knocks things out of the park in the same way that a pickup truck that shares its platform, engine, driveline, and so much more uh, did just a few short years ago. Now, what I'm talking about is the new Honda Passport, uh, which is a mid-size crossover that's based on the same platform under the Honda Pilot, the Honda Ridgeline, and the Honda Odyssey minivan. Uh, the Passport uh, is a shortened version of the Pilot. It shares a lot of the same body panels, um, but it loses that third row of seats and adds a lot more cargo capacity to the back of the vehicle. And I think just makes sense, but it also gives this SUV, or excuse me, this crossover a, a little bit of a higher ride stance, a little bit more of an off-road ready suspension, and a little bit more of an off-road capable tune to the super handling all-wheel drive system uh, that just makes it just a better I don't know, cooler crossover to me than the Pilot. Uh, now, the, the headline thing is, of course, that it uses the same bits and bobs underneath it that every Honda crossover slash pickup truck slash minivan has. That's the 282 horsepower 3.5 liter V6. Uh, in this case, it's mated to a 9-speed automatic, which I think is a little bit of a disappointment uh, compared to the 6-speed unit that's used in the Honda Ridgeline. Nevertheless, that... Uh, nine-speed gearbox is, you know, relatively capable. It does add some fuel economy, um, but it does take away the gear selector in the center dashboard. Uh, it uses a push-button gear selector that's kind of weird for a lot of people. Um, I don't think it's that bad, but some people really hate it. Uh, but that nine-speed unit is known for hunting gears a lot and shifting kind of abruptly at different times. Uh, the six-speed one that's in the Ridgeline is just a little more smooth. I think it applies power a little bit better. It just seems to work a little bit better. I don't think Honda wants to step back, especially if they've gotten the tune much better with the new uh, and updated Pilot. Uh, so 
I, I don't think it's kind of a loss. It's just a personal preference at this point. Uh, but that V6 is plenty powerful. It gets pretty good gas mileage. Um, this thing, you know, really hauls. And I think the main thing with this Pilot, or excuse me, the Passport compared to the Pilot is that it's a little bit smaller and it's going to be just that much more capable off-road uh, compared to the Pilot, which is already pretty damn capable. Uh, that super handling all-wheel drive system that's underneath it uh, is able to send uh, power not just from the front wheels but to the back, but also from one side of the vehicle to the other and do it completely independent of another. So if the front driver's side and the rear passenger side tires are the only tires with grip, uh, the computer system in that Passport will send the power to the right wheels and get you out of trouble very easily. Um, but also, you know, it, it does a lot to increase the handling capability of it in the dry, but also keep you out of trouble in the wet, in the snow, in the mud, in the dirt. Uh, I'm just very impressed with this car. Um, I think the higher ride height, I think, makes the crossover look a good bit cooler than the standard Pilot. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily the most practical solution uh, to day-to-day -day driving. I, I, me being a taller guy, I don't think I would need side steps getting into it. Uh, but for somebody that's a little bit shorter than me, it might be a necessary option. And I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, the other thing that I'm not particularly a fan of is the way that Honda does their trim levels in this thing. Uh, the standard sport model comes with a lot of really nice creature comforts, including Honda Sensing uh, that does the lane departure warning, the turn indicator cameras. I think it even has automated cruise control uh, at that price point, which is pretty good. Um, but you don't get Apple CarPlay and Android Auto at that trim level. You got to step on up to the EX or an EXL trims. Uh, that does increase the price quite a bit. Um, the base trim models with front-wheel drive, I think, start at like $32,000 before destination. Um, when you step up to the EX to get the nicer trim appointments, to get the nicer touchscreen and the dashboard, you're running up right up almost to $40,000, and that really kind of sucks. Uh, that four-wheel drive system is definitely worth getting. I would highly recommend doing so. You could get away with a front-wheel drive unit, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it here in Michigan. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, it, it's hard to, you know, jump right into the Passport before having driven one. Um, I've sat in one. I, I was very impressed. If you're familiar at all with the Ridgeline, if you're familiar at all with the Pilot, it, you're going to feel right at home. I think it's just really the confluence of it being the right size, having the right kind of capable four-wheel drive system, and really kind of doing the same thing that Ridgeline does, where it's nothing more than you need, it's pretty much everything you want, and it's at a pretty good price, and it just makes sense choosing the Passport as the number one best two-row crossover in the U.S. right now. Now, the fourth option segment is a little bit of a split decision for me. And I think this is really going to kind of come down to, one, what size of a vehicle you want, and two, how much money you're willing to spend on a new crossover. Uh, starting with, I think, my most controversial choice here, this is a crossover that I have complained about an awful lot on the Salvage Title podcast, uh, and that is the Chevy Blazer, the all-new Chevy Blazer for 2019. Now, what I like about this crossover is the fact that it looks drop-dead gorgeous. I think it is without a doubt one of the best-looking crossovers on sale today. 
Uh, it's styled to look like the Camaro Sports Coupe, but in a four-door crossover body form uh, that carries not only from the exterior, but also to the interior. It just has a lot of style in the way that Giant Bomb would describe some games uh, that just have this consistent vision that just works really well. And I think this crossover does have that in spades. Now, where things start to fall apart is when you get into trim and engine options and overall quality and refinement that, depending on where your priorities are as a buyer, it might not necessarily be the best pick. I really like the fact that Jevy went all in with the sporty end of the crossover segment on this. Uh, it, you know, like I said, it looks like a Camaro. It, it rides and handles a little more tightly like a car would. Um, it gives it a little bit more of an aggressive overall appearance and really kind of looks like a much more modern uh, city-ready crossover um, out there. I think if, if it's looking for a main competitor, the Ford Edge would be one, but the problem is that the Ford Edge is absolutely ancient at this point by comparison. At least the Chevy is based on a relatively new chassis, has some more modern uh, technological appointments and things like that. It just, it works in a way that I, I think is really great. But because Chevy needed to get it out very quickly to fill that gap between the Equinox and the Traverse, um, it really feels like they cut a lot of corners when it came to the overall function of the interior, and a lot of the quality of the interior is really not up to snuff. Um, things like the air vents use the Camaro-style uh, heating and cooling controls. Uh, they're kind of these circle woo-woo-woo-woo vents that uh, are in vogue recently with Audi and Mercedes and many other brands. Um, I really don't feel like they work there, um, and I really don't feel like the cheap plastics that are all over the dashboard, and especially on the front and rear passenger doors, uh, they just, it doesn't look good, it doesn't feel good, I don't think it's going to wear good, and with this suspension having a much more taut uh, setup being a little more rough on some brittle pavement like what we have in Michigan. Uh, those cheap door plastics are going to rattle themselves apart after 60, 70,000 miles, and I'm really not too excited to see what these things look like in used shape. That also being said, when it comes to practicality, uh, this one's going to be lacking a bit. Uh, the rear space behind the back seats, I think, is only like, it's less than 31 cubic feet. Um, that's barely more than like a small to mid-size crossover. I think our Toyota RAV4 or a Honda CRV might actually have more space behind the rear seats than the Chevy does. Uh, and that is due in part to the raked back end to give it that more sporty appearance. Um, you know, again, if you're if you're not using it like a pickup truck, like you would with the Jeep Grand Cherokee or the Honda Passport, uh, I think you're going to be okay, uh, but uh, it's not going to do as much as what other crossovers will in this segment. But, again, if you're into a sporty ride, if you're into a sporty drive, which I typically would be, if you're into that sporty look... Uh, this thing's got it in spades, man. Like, it's a really good-looking crossover, especially in that RS trim. And that's where we kind of get to the next big bad point, is that Chevy is pricing this thing into the stratosphere. Um, a pretty modestly equipped model with the V6, with four-wheel drive, or excuse me, with all-wheel drive, uh, with a cloth interior, you know, with some other minor niceties equipped, you're looking at about $40,000 before incentives and anything else, which isn't great, but it isn't bad. It's just with that interior quality, I don't think that's quite where it should be. It should be closer to like 
$36,000, before incentives. Um, but like for the top trim, like RS, that's like a $50,000 crossover. And that's freaking crazy. Don't spend that kind of money. Uh, get the lower trim models, get the cloth seats. Um, you still get a lot of the other niceties to go with it. So I think that's kind of the sweet spot with this one. Chevy will inevitably put thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of incentives on, on the hood of these vehicles. And, you know, at 35, at 35, $6,000, I think this does make a lot more sense. Now, the other number four option, which I think was my main one to begin with, uh, that is the new Hyundai Santa Fe. Hyundai did a bang-up job with this new crossover, um, replacing the previous generation Santa Fe Sport, which is kind of a weird intermediate vehicle between the size of a Honda CRV and something like a Ford Edge. Um, Hyundai used to split the Santa Fe between the Santa Fe Sport and the Santa Fe XL, where the XL would be more like a if, if the Santa Fe Sport was more Ford Edge sized, perhaps a little bit smaller, um, the Santa Fe XL was more Ford Explorer sized, if not maybe slightly larger. Um, the new Santa Fe is neither. Uh, it, it's, again, kind of straddling a lot of things. Uh, directly compared to something like... Uh, the Subaru Outback and the Jeep Grand Cherokee. Um, the Santa Fe is much closer in overall size compared to the Subaru Outback, um, albeit with a much higher ride height. Um, but I think really the main point with this vehicle is that for the money, and this is a reoccurring thing when I talk about Hyundai's and all of these comparison uh, car buyers guides, is that for the money, you are not going to get more for your dollar. Like, Hyundai loads these things up with a ton of standard equipment for not much cash, and in the end, at the $40,000 price cap, you're getting the turbocharged 2-liter engine, you're getting, you know, all the leather, all the heated stuff, all the autonomous things, all the safety equipment, all of the high-end audio, all of it. Every single option box is checked for $40,000, and you might still even be a tick or two underneath that. And really, I think the main thing with the Santa Fe is that it is an incredibly good-looking vehicle, uh, especially in red and orange. Uh, it really makes the accents on this vehicle pop in a way that I think the only other vehicle that looks better than it in this segment would be the Chevy Blazer. Um, but, you know, sitting in the seats, sitting in the rear seats, uh, using the back cargo area, it's the attention to detail that Hyundai has as of late that I think really goes above and beyond a lot of the competitors. And that includes Honda. Uh, the Android Auto Apple CarPlay system works flawlessly. It's standard on the base trim model. Um, the, uh, you know, radar cruise control, the lane keep assist, the... Uh, braking assist, stuff like that, uh, isn't quite as touchy as the Honda sensing system that's in the Passport. Uh, you get a little bit more fuel economy, especially if you go with the lower trim 2.4 liter engine as standard. Um, you know, it's it's just like a right-sized vehicle. And when you, when you knock on the panels on the interior, they don't feel particularly cheap. It's a lot of high-touch, or excuse me, a lot of the high-touch areas are really high-quality, soft material stuff. Uh, that really feels good. You know, the heated seats work great. They're ventilated seats in many of the instances with the ultimate trim. Um, you just come away with a vehicle that is very, very nice for not a whole lot of money. And I think really with the Santa Fe, the main takeaway is you can still end up with a very nice SUV, or excuse me, crossover, that's likely $10,000 cheaper 
sometimes even more than that than the Jeep Grand Cherokee, and I think you might be a little bit better off in some of those cases. Uh, now, like I said, size-wise, it is admittedly smaller than a lot of the other ones in this class, but I think in terms of somebody who lives in the city, somebody who deals with some slight inclement weather from time to time, uh, somebody who would be cross-shopping a Subaru Outback to something like this, uh, I really do think if it were my money, I would definitely buy the Hyundai over the Subaru, um, but that's just me, and that sounds weird coming from me because it does definitely ride up a good bit higher than that Subaru. Um, but if you had a chance, go and check out these new Hyundais. They are incredibly nice vehicles. Uh, they, they continue to blow me away with every execution that they're doing. Um, I really can't speak highly enough of these units. Um, they're just absolutely fantastic. And I think if it weren't for the smaller size of the Santa Fe, it definitely would be my number one choice uh, for the crossover in this segment uh, in 2019. <music> Well, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Car Buyer's Guide, where we discuss mid-size two-row crossovers. Uh, now, you may be thinking, why didn't I talk about uh, SUV or crossover X or Y or Z? Um, there are some several big ones that weren't discussed here. Uh, namely, one is the Toyota 4Runner. Um, the big problem I have with the Toyota 4Runner is that it is a body-on-frame SUV. It is basically a pickup truck underneath. Um, it is a lot less comfortable, it is a lot less fuel-efficient, and it is much much, much older than a lot of the other new stuff out there, and I don't really think the bones that are beneath it make it that much capable than some of the other cars, or at least car-based crossovers that are out there today. Uh, Toyota is likely making a new 4Runner in the very near future. That also includes a new Toyota Tacoma pickup truck. We're all very excited to see what ends up happening, but uh, it's just not something that I can directly recommend to people unless they are looking for a serious off-road two-row uh, SUV or crossover these days. Um, another big one that I left out is, of course, the Ford Edge, which I think I did mention at some point. Um, the Ford Edge, the problem I have is that even despite its recent revisions ex with the exterior and the interior, um, it is a very old old vehicle. Um, it is way past overdue for an update. I'm sure Ford is working on a new one, uh, but they got to get the new Escape done first, and I just can't really recommend the Edge right now, especially compared to other vehicles within Ford's lineup and really across a lot of the other American brands. There just seem to be better options for the same amount of money. That also includes the Dodge Durango, um, which is based, I believe, on the same chassis as the Jeep Grand Cherokee. Um, the Durango is a little bit longer. It is a three-row crossover. It is a little bit more sport-oriented. Uh, I just really think the Grand Cherokee is a better-looking, better daily-use vehicle than the Durango. As much as I do love some aspects of the Durango, uh, I don't think it would be a good vehicle for me to use every single day, and I think it would be the case for a lot of other people. And really, the only other thing I could have thought of in this segment that really kind of straddles two or three different lines is the Kia Sorento and the Kia Sportage. Uh, neither of them fit in the right class when it comes to layout, size, and performance, um, the new Santa Fe just is that much better, and I think really, you know, Kia will get there with the next generation Sportage, with the next generation Sorento, but it just isn't quite there yet, so we went without. 
But uh, if you've got some thoughts, questions, uh, any other comments on it, you know, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at YSSMAN or follow along with previous episodes of this show at anchor.fm slash YSSMAN. Uh, we do a regular uh, series of episodes on Mondays or Tuesdays where we talk about uh, some general car topics in the scrap story episodes. And then we do the main news-oriented stories on Friday um, with the regular salvage title um, episodes. So follow along on uh, Apple iTunes, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, so much more. Um, I'd really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, that ends the first uh, Salvage Shuttle Car Buyers buyers Guide that we've done in quite some time. Um, I hope it gave you some interesting advice, some interesting perspectives. Um, This is a very hotly contested uh, subset of vehicles that uh, these are going to be changing all the time. There's never really a clear best answer um you know the, the every other year you're going to be getting a car maker coming out with a new thing that's going to be hitting some other point and i think right now the big thing is going to be fuel economy electrification and overall utility um, for a lot of people and i think there's going to be a lot more smaller type crossovers entering the segment in the next year or two to uh, continue to kind of graduate people from toyota camrys honda accords chevy malibus and so much more into these larger vehicles because uh this is where the money is at so yeah guys uh hope you had some fun so heard some things that you found interesting and uh We will see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Car Buyer's Guide. See you next time.